makes people in love. And then the first thing we learn about this God is that he makes us in his image. God in Genesis 1 says, let us, there's a little bit of a hint of Trinity right there. I mean, God is speaking. God said, let us make man in our image, male and female, he made them. He makes us in community precisely because he is a God in community himself. Uh, a person who is in isolation um, in our modern age, you know, you've got the rugged individualist, like where people think, you know, if I could just be detached from everyone, that would be so cool. But actually, you've defaced the image of God of your life. The image of God is essentially relational. It's about community. And uh, Jesus, in John 17, prays to the Father. He says, Father, make them one as we are one. And in, that, in John 17, he speaks about the love and the glory they've been enjoying for all eternity. He says, I can't wait to come back to, to that glory that I had before the world even began. And uh, Jesus is, is saying that this, the relationships between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are the standard of Christian community. He's really praying us up to humbly celebrate each other, to enjoy each other, to serve each other, to collaborate with each other at the highest level. So, I mean... You get a picture of these relationships, and that's what our relationships are meant to be. Thankfully, the Trinity is not just a standard. The Trinity is the source. The Trinity gives us the power. I mean, the love within the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit spills over. I spoke about this yesterday. The Father sends the Son in love. The Father and the Son send the Spirit in love. There's this outward cascade of love that comes to us, and then we learn to love each other. And the love the Father has for us and the Son has for us, and the Spirit has for us, flows over in our love for each other. We are imperfect, we've fallen, but God is redeeming us and restoring the image of Christ in us, and that image is an image of love. Okay, so the first reason we do small groups, very simply, is because it so lines up with who God is. We need to find some people that we're going to really do tight community with, because God is tight community. If you don't have it, you're missing something that is right at the essence of God. The second reason that, uh, that we're highly motivated to be involved in small group and uh, to give energy and to pray for the people in the group and to bring our best there is because of the metaphors of the church in the New Testament. Uh, you might know this, especially in the book of Ephesians, but all over the New Testament, there are different pictures of the church. The New Testament never defines the church. It just gives you these pictures. It'll tell us that the church is a body. And, of course, Christ is its head. And the church is a temple. And, of course, Christ is its cornerstone. And the church is an army. And Christ is the commanding officer. And the church is a family. And Christ is the older brother. And our heavenly father is the father. And the church is a bride. And Christ is the bridegroom. Or the church is a flock of sheep, and Christ is the shepherd. Or the church are branches, and Christ is the vine, or the stem. And uh, these pictures, if you notice, they don't only speak about our relationship to Christ, they speak about our relationship to each other. The moment that we are united to Christ, we're also united to each other. So just think about church's family. With God as our father and Christ as our older brother, we love each other as brothers and sisters. Or think about the church's body. Each of us is a distinctive member joined to each other, belonging to each other. In the same way, my hand belongs to my leg. And yet each of us functions in a particular way, but we are united in purpose. We don't work against each other. We work with each other. 
Well, think about the church as a temple where each of us are built into and built onto each other, stone upon stone, lives tightly interlocking. Well, think about the church as an army and each, each uh, church, each uh, small group, a fighting unit, uh, standing shoulder to shoulder in battle, never fighting with each other, but rather fighting for each other and alongside each other in a spiritual battle of eternal consequence. And you just think about all these pictures. They push you towards relationship. They push you towards relationship. If you think about church just as coming on a Sunday, sitting in rows and singing songs and someone's preaching, and then you do a little bit of socializing at the end with coffee in your hand, can you see what's missing? (laughs) Deep relationship is missing in that. And the doctrine of the Trinity says we need to find a place in church life where we do deep relationship. And the metaphors of the body, of the church, tell us that we need to find a place in church where we do deep relationship. It doesn't end there. Uh, the one another's of the New Testament are a third biblical reason why we should get involved in community. So think about it. Jesus goes up to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And he he says to them, hey, come, not Luke, sorry, Matthew, Mark, and John. He goes to them, not even Mark. (laughs) I caught all of you guys. Mark and Luke aren't disciples of Jesus. Um, He goes up to them and he says, come, follow me. And in that moment, um, they're just going to follow him. But they quickly discover that they're not the only one following him. There's, There's these other guys. And then Jesus says, oh, by the way, love one another as I've loved you. And uh, what he does is he calls us to follow him personally, but then he puts us in community. And then a lot of what he's going to teach us, just look at his disciples, is how to treat each other. So in John 13, just before he is crucified, as a picture of this cruciform life, this life of laying down your life in love for others, he washes their feet. And then he says, I'll set you an example so that you know how to love each other, serve each other humbly, wash each other's feet. In Matthew 18, Peter is just so hurtful with, with having to forgive this one guy who just keeps pressing the same button, just, you know, and purposely. You can just tell this guy is purposely aggravating Peter. And Peter speaks to Jesus, and you know, he wants Jesus to deal with this guy. And then he says, you know, I'm actually done. I'm not even going to talk to this guy anymore. He's talking about one of the other 11 disciples. We don't know which one it is. And he says, how many times must I forgive this guy? You know, seven times? Uh, and Jesus, the answer is famous, 70 times 7. See what Jesus is doing. He's called us individually. But a lot of what he's doing in our lives is teaching us to love each other so that our, our one anothering is an aspect of discipleship. Or said another way, our lives are changing in the context of relationship. It's not just me and Jesus. It's we and Jesus. And, uh, and then, by the way, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but if you read the... Um, if you read the, the New Testament epistles and you look for the phrase one another or each other, it comes up like 50 times. And you've got all of these descriptions of how we are meant to one another, each other in the body of Christ, in the church. Accept one another, Romans 15. Admonish one another. Be at peace with one another. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Build each other up. Carry each other's burdens. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Confess your sins to each other. Encourage each other. Forgive each other. Honor one another above yourselves. Instruct one another. Live in harmony with one another. Love one another. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Pray for each other. Serve one another in love. 
Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Use whatever gift you have received to serve one another. I mean, that's a lot of one another. That's just a sample. There's a lot more in the New Testament, by the way. But can you see that there is almost a command underneath all of those commands that goes like this? Have some people that you are committed to. <laughs> There's a mutual commitment. Because a lot of people can do Christianity that they actually are no one another's in their life. So they don't need to do any of this, and they disobey every single one of those commands simply because they skim off the surface of a church. They like the big meetings where they get inspiration. They get, you know, but don't actually put me with some people. Don't put me with some people. And, uh, and it's, it's in these relationships. That is the context of spiritual growth. In fact, the... the, the um, the, tell, the true litmus test of spiritual growth is how we relate to each other. So we often think, okay, I've had a lot of cool experiences lately. I was walking on the beach. You know, it's like I could just feel God. And, and, and then I'm learning. I'm reading this book. I'm learning amazing stuff. All of that is good, okay? Experiences and content, very important. But the litmus test of whether this is actually doing you any good is how you're relating to people around you. And, uh, and, and, and that's why the, all of these spiritual lessons and experiences need to be earthed in community. Uh, right at the heart of the gospel is this life of love. You know, uh, there's a Chinese uh, story that the difference between hell and heaven in uh, this Chinese proverb is that actually they're very similar. There's a bunch of people sitting around in a circle, and there's this delicious feast of food uh, in between all of them, and, they, and, and everybody's got... Two chopsticks, everybody, super long chopsticks, longer than your arm. And uh, the difference between heaven and hell is that in hell, everybody's starved and miserable, hitting each other with chopsticks. In heaven, everybody's laughing, everybody's feasting, food running down your chin, big, you know, tummy. You're just happy as can be. And you know what the difference is? In heaven, everybody's feeding each other. Because the chopsticks are too long in hell, everyone's trying to feed themselves. They can't. They can't. The beautiful picture of what Jesus is trying to do with our lives. We, we come into this world, and we know how to look after numero uno, <laughs> our sinful nature, human nature. We just look after ourselves. Our culture doesn't exactly teach us to be unselfish. Our culture says, what do you need? Go get it. Our culture affirms all of our desires. And says, there are no illegitimate desires. Your desires are the most important thing about you. And the gospel says, that's not true. Uh, actually, the most important thing about you is how you treat the people around you. Uh, so can you see how important one anothering is and how that motivates you to find some people in a church that you can actually one another with? And uh, that's where uh, small groups come in. And then one last reason uh, I'm trying to motivate us you know, with biblical theology that, that small groups are so important is, is the way the early church, I'm thinking about the book of Acts. The book of Acts describes the early church, the way the early church used to meet in homes. I mean, if you just flip through the 28 chapters of the book of Acts, you'll see how central homes are in the life of the church. And actually, it stems back to the Gospels because you'll see how central homes are in the ministry of Jesus. I mean, just read the Gospels and you'll see how often Jesus is at somebody's house, the house of Peter, or the house of Zacchaeus, or the house of Simon the leper, or Lazarus's home. And then when he sends the 72 out on a, 
where they're mission trips, he gives them the instruction, enter into people's homes and announce peace to this house. So Jesus put the home right as a central ministry strategy, a ministry vehicle. And his disciples, his apostles, just live that out into the book of Acts. I mean, let me read some examples from the book of Acts. Acts 12, Peter went to the house of Mary where there were many people gathered in prayer. Or Acts 16, Paul and Silas went to Lydia's house where they saw and encouraged the brothers and then they left. Or Romans 16, Greek... uh, Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus, greet also the church at their house. Or Colossians 4, greet, uh, give greetings to the brothers in Laodicea and to Nympha and to the church in her house. Or Philemon 1, Paul to Philemon, our beloved and our co-worker, to Aphia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church at your house. In fact, Acts chapter 5 shows that the apostles used to do both evangelism and discipleship in homes. Listen to this. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching, that's discipleship, and proclaiming the good news, that's evangelism, that Jesus is the Messiah. They did it in homes. They did it in homes. And then, I mean, if you've been a Christian for a few years, you've heard this passage preached on about 17 times. But let me read it again. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I mean, that's a snapshot of uh, homes right at the heart of the way they did church in the, in the first century. Uh, the fact that they didn't have church buildings, uh, you know, made it that much more important. But as church history evolved and Constantine came about and churches actually started getting cool properties in the middle of a city, it didn't negate God's primary strategy, which was the home, as the key uh, ministry weapon of the believer into the world. So deep motivation, I hope you get it. The Trinity, the images of the church, the one another's, and the act strategic emphasis on homes. All of this gives us the deepest why for why we need to find some people that we're going deeper with. Okay, are you motivated <laughs> to, to do small groups and to find some people that you're going to go deep with? <laughs> okay. I thought it would motivate you because it's from the Bible. I mean, you'd have, to, you'd have to really be hard people not to feel motivated. Notice the difference between theology and pragmatics, by the way. If you really want to go get deep commitment from people and, and that commitment's held for the long haul, don't motivate them with pragmatics. Motivate them with theology. Because theology answers the question, what, what is God like? What is God like? And then we organize our lives and our churches according to that. Okay, so that's the first, first half of my talk. You ready for the second half? <laughs> Flying through this because it's night time. It's crazy. And what are we doing listening to someone preach on a night, eh? Well done to you guys. <laughs> okay, what purposes exactly do we hope small groups will achieve? Now, I need to say this, that, that it might be different in Sterling. What I'm going to do is tell you our, our reflection in common ground, where we also do small groups, 
And uh, we try to find a biblical passage that would guide what we are trying to do in small groups. Because if you know what you're trying to do, you can actually organize how you do it. Until you know what you're trying to do, you don't know, you you can't even think of a strategy. You can't even think of methods. So uh, I'm not going to speak about how but I'm going to speak about what, what I think you should be shooting for in small groups. Small group leaders, I imagine that you'd be listening that much more, but all of us, this guides our efforts, it guides our commitments, it, it, and it guides our expectations. So five things. Number one, small groups are for belonging. Small groups are for belonging. Remember Acts chapter 2, they devoted themselves to fellowship. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Belonging, belonging to each other in mutual friendship and love. I love that line, with glad and sincere hearts. Uh, some small groups, if you visit them, there's a lot of sincerity. Everybody's speaking about their, their problems and, uh, and, and, their, and their love for God and, and studying the Bible. A lot of intensity. It's good. We need to be, you know, have sincere hearts. But there's not much gladness, not much laughing. And uh, people want to get the heck out of there because it's exhausting after a while. <laughs> Then you get some small groups, there's a lot of laughter, but not much depth. There's glad, but not sincere. I think you're shooting at both, gladness and sincerity. But, but notice this, that people belong. Um, as a pastor for many years, uh, one of the things that breaks my heart is when I bump into someone that I haven't seen at church for a few months, and you bump into them at the shop, and you can almost feel like they're trying to avoid you. No, don't avoid me, you know. I don't mind if you go to another church, like, if you're still people, and, and then you get talking to them, and you go, hey, man, I miss you. What's been up? And they say, you know, I really did like it. I came, and I, I loved the preaching. I loved the worship. But, you know, I just didn't feel like I belonged after a while. Okay, fair enough. And then you ask them, oh, tell me something, and it's a cheeky, it's an naughty question. Uh, what small group were you in? We started calling them life groups. What life group? Were you in? And they go, well, I did want to visit, but I, I didn't. And I have to bite my tongue at this point. Because how did you expect to belong just by arriving on Sundays? There's always a different person sitting next to you. You know what I mean? Like, belonging comes from actually making a commitment. Uh, you know, you actually needed to do something if you were going to get the belonging feeling. And uh, so we've got to keep reminding people that this doesn't happen automatically. Salvation is automatic. It's like rain from the sky. But belonging in community is more like a plant that grows from the ground. You need to actually till the soil. You need to plant the seed. There's something you might need to do to make this belonging happen. Okay? So small groups are for belonging. They're for friendship. They're for friendship. And it's always a challenge. It's one thing that a church is friendly. It's more important that a church is Actually, there's space for friends. And, uh, and, and by the way, it, you might think you're friendly, but ask people when they come to church whether they feel it's a friendly church. Because you might be friendly to the people you know, but when a new person arrives, they just feel clicks everywhere. You're like a fish in water. You don't even realize how clickish things can be. And I really want to encourage us all to always be on the lookout for the new person who's stumbled in on a Sunday or to some meeting. And usually they'll be on their cell phone because that is a, a you know... It's like a beer at a party or a cigarette in your hand or a cell phone. It's like, I'm cool, but actually I'm alone. That's why I'm doing this, and you guys are all talking to each other. So we need to be a, fr- a properly, properly friendly church, but then go beyond friendliness to friendship. 
And I don't know if there's a better way to grow a church than when, every, when anyone arrives at a church, somebody invites them to a meal. <laughs> you know, I just think that's got to be, unfortunately, most of us are busy. But, but if we could, you know, that'd be pretty awesome. We thought like that. We thought like that. But anyway, small groups are about belonging. That's the first thing we're trying to do. We're trying to do friendships. I'm not saying that everybody there is going to be your best friend, but hopefully you're going to find some good friends there. I mean, of Jesus' 12 disciples, it's clear that three of them were his very close mates. So, so always in a group, you're going to find some, some closer friends, but, but they're about friendship. They're about friendship. The second thing small groups are about, not only about belonging, they are for caring. They're for caring. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. In difficult times, we need to be able to stand with and support each other. I think every church leader I know would love to lead a church where nobody stands alone. Uh, Back to this bumping into somebody. And this, this will not usually happen on, in a shopping center. This will happen after a meeting. I'm preached. Someone comes up to me and says, I just want to talk to you about something. I'm going, What's up? And they go, you know, you guys talk a lot about caring for each other. And none of this is going somewhere. Well, the last month has been hell for me. Hell. And it's the worst month of my life. And you know what? Nobody has cared for me. No one. And then you know what my next question is. Tell me something. <laughs> what, uh, what small group are you in again? And they go like, well, I, I visited this one, and then, and then I didn't go back. <laughs> How on earth did you expect to get care if nobody was even close enough to you to know that you're struggling? Did you think like telepathically people would just know that you're struggling? You actually needed to invest in some community. And, and here's one of the things that we have to keep reminding each other. You can't control the bad things that are going to happen in your life and in my life. I mean, hardships are coming. We know that. If you've lived a while, you, you go, okay, I accept the fact life is hard, and judging on the past, there's more hardships coming. So you, but you can't control what those hardships are. But you do have a lot of control over who the people will be to help stand with you in those hardships. Because the, the, the relationships that you're investing in now will be the people That'll, that'll be there by your side when that hardship comes. And perhaps the best investment you can make for your future self is to actually you know, send down roots into some friendships. Because those are the people that are going to stand with you and care for you. Uh, you know, uh, when the fin hits the, sh the shan, <laughs> I turned it around. The fit hits the shan. <laughs> There's going to be somebody there for you. We've got to care for each other. You know, um, a church like Sterling, there are a lot of people, hundreds and hundreds of people. It's impossible that the pastors will be able to care for everyone in the church. Because we do have the expectation, a pastor, they're carers. And it's true, the pastors oversee the church. But in the Old Testament and the New Testament, when numbers begin to grow, the pastors tend to get more and more thinly spread, and then they, they start generate they start raising up under-shepherds. Read Exodus chapter 18, you'll see Moses raising up under-shepherds. Or read Acts chapter 6, you'll see the apostles raising up under-shepherds. Uh, they, they start delegating shepherding to people. So absolutely we're into people who oversee some other people and care for them. But did you know in the New Testament there's only, I think, four or five places, four or five places where it speaks about this shepherd to sheep relationship. Only four or five places. 
and yet there are 50 places that speak about one anothering. What does that say? That we should rightfully expect care from each other, not from the pastors. And the pastors just need to try to work hard to make sure everybody's got some one anothering around them. And, and you know one of the things you know, I notice in, in Common Ground is the, the, what, what causes the pastors to drown is when people that come on Sundays hit hardship, it comes to the pastors, and then you've you know, you, you got to get involved. And then the reason it's come straight to you is because that person's not in a small group. So you get these poor pastors that are... Oh, and then it's amazing when people are in small groups, how few of them will actually come to pastors. And uh, just speaking on behalf of pastors, there's a lot on the plate, especially when you've got bivocational pastors that work, uh, you know, and are in tons of extra meetings. Of course, they're available to the people. But the best thing pastors can do is raise up under shepherds and to be available to people, but to teach the people to one another. I think that's God's primary strategy. And then, of course, if, if you've got a really heavy one, you're going to go to pastors, and you're going to say, hey, this one's too big for me. Please get involved. And by the way, if anything that's, that's serious comes into your small group, I hope you know you should co- you know, contact your point pastor and just say, hey, just need to let you know about this situation. It's quite serious. Don't think you got it. it, it it's better that they know. Better that they know. If I can just say something else. I've noticed that some small groups sink when there's too many hurting people in the group to too few healthy people. And I can't help thinking of that story in Mark chapter 2 where there's the crippled guy being carried by four friends. That just feels like a right ratio. Four healthy people to one <laughs> crippled guy. Because what happens, you get three healthy people, and you've got five uh, sinking people, you know, in their state of life, and, and, and those three healthy people are, are starting to get unhealthy <laughs> as time's going on. And uh, just to be aware of that dynamic, aware of that dynamic, it, when your group feels like it's sinking, it might be because it's sinking, and then you might need to call pastors and say, hey, we've got a situation, you know, the, the bunch of us are sinking, and if you can help intervene so we can get this group more healthy people than, than, uh, than struggling people. Okay, the third reason that, uh, third purpose of small groups is not only belonging, not only care, it's for growing. It's for growing. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And the idea in the New Testament and the Old Testament is you don't grow through teaching just getting in your head. You grow through teaching getting in your life. You grow through teaching getting in your heart. Not enough just to fill up your head with information. That is a, a Greek idea, not a Hebrew idea. The Hebrew idea is you, you integrate the teaching into your life. In Deuteronomy 6, uh, God speaks to parents how to spiritually form their children. It says, you know, while you're on the road, while you're walking through the, the door, teach as you go along. Integrate the teaching with life. And uh, one of the things about um, Sunday teaching is that it's actually very limited in our ability to make us grow. One, what tends to happen, you listen to 30, 40 minutes, however long, of content that really is interesting in the moment, but it's amazing how much of it you actually forget. And, uh, and not only that, you've heard content, but it's been very generic in its application, whereas actually you've got a very specific life with very specific challenges, specific people that you live with, and how you apply that teaching will be very different to people around you. And one of the important things that small groups do is that it takes the Sunday content and closes the gap between what we heard on the Sunday and the lives we actually live. Because you actually need some people to grapple with that. 
You need to say, hey, this is what the guy said, but let's be honest, my life doesn't look like that at all, and I don't have the motivation, I'm too tired. Mind you, I actually wouldn't know how. And having these conversations where you keep closing the gap between the brilliant ideas coming from the preachers and the lives we actually live is so important. And it it helps us obey James 1 verse 22, which says, do not only be a hearer of the word, but a doer also. But a doer also. My dear, again, back to what I said earlier, life change happens in the context of relationships. And then fourth reason, fourth purpose in small groups is not only would it be a place of belonging, and of care, and of growth, but it would be a place of encounter, a place to encounter Jesus. They devoted themselves to prayer. They were praising God. Now, I think you may have figured it out, that vertical love tends to overflow into horizontal love, that, that when you're close to Jesus, it tends to flow over into your relationships with other people. Um, but did you ever stop and think that it works the other way too? that your horizontal love can also flow back and enrich your vertical love. I'm going to read you a verse. If you've read Ephesians before, you might even remember it. Listen to this. I pray that you all, being rooted and grounded in love, may, together with all the saints, grasp the love of Christ. So what's he praying? He's saying, I pray that you're going to grasp the love of Christ. I pray that you'd experience it, you'd comprehend it, you would internalize this love. But notice what he says. He says, I pray that this would happen together with all the saints. He didn't imagine that you just on your own reading your Bible in a corner was going to be able to internalize love. You need brothers and sisters in Christ who also have a relationship with God. And it's as you pray together, as you read the Bible together, as you pray for each other, as you praise God together, together you grasp the, the love of God. In some ways, uh, all of us carry a different piece of the puzzle. In our relationship with God and our time in the Scriptures, what God is teaching us, we, we're given puzzle pieces. And when we come to a small group, we do relationship with some people, we can say, hey, look what God taught me. Look what God taught me. And you know, we put it on the table, and it's actually God teaching us. We encounter God together. And, uh, and then sometimes what happens in small groups is that we only go horizontal. We talk about how everyone's doing, but we forget to pray. We forget to make solitude. We forget to actually expect that the Holy Spirit will be present. So as small group leaders, keep on thinking about how you can really get God in the room, not just someone you're talking about, but actually He's in the room engaging with you. And uh, one of the places, by the way, to grow in spiritual gifts, such as hearing God's voice for other people, is in small groups. That's a great safe place to, in your time of prayer, say, hey, while we're praying, God just put in my head this thought. He's given me the scripture. And that's where we can really practice a lot of those gifts that helps, every, that helps build everyone up. Okay, my last point. You guys are so brilliant. Look at you. So concentrating on a Monday night. The end of the year. Small groups are not just for, um, for belonging, friendship, for care, for growing, for encounter. They're also for integrating. They're also for integrating new people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Okay, this point is where almost everywhere small groups tend to be weak. Small groups tend to, by their very nature, be inward focused. And let's do community together. The moment you speak like that, you're you're locking in. You're looking into each other. You're like, hey, here we are. Isn't it awesome? And, uh, And yet, this passage teaches us that 
that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they love each other, but they're outward focused. The love they have is flowing out and over and bringing more people into the circle. They're making the circle bigger. That's the Trinitarian love. And, uh, and the question is, how can a small group still make space for new people so that when new people arrive, they don't go, oh, geez, no, I don't fit in there. Those guys are just a click. They didn't even want me. You pick up this passive-aggressive behavior. You know, somebody stretches their arm in front of you to take a biscuit. And you're like, hi. And you've got the crocodile smile. And actually what people are feeling is like, we don't want you in our group. We were fine without you, you know. And, uh, and, then, and then there's also the reality is that if you're, you're Christians and a, a new Christian or a non-Christian arrives, it's kind of like you've got to change tack for that person and maybe you don't want to. Maybe you don't want to. And, uh, and this is a challenge. And I want to encourage you, if you're a small group, to be outward focused and to still think about new people. And I'm just going to give you a couple of ideas. The one idea is that in your group, I think at least twice a year, you should have a night where you, you, everyone pulls out a piece of paper and you say, so name the three people who are far from God that at the moment you're busy praying for, uh, you know, that you're praying for and you're trusting that God could maybe reach them in the next year. Everybody said, or one person says, geez, I haven't thought about this forever. That's why we're doing this exercise. We're helping all of us keep thinking about the people out there. And then, and then let's talk. If you ever have a spiritual conversation with one of these people, uh, you know, share it with us. That's just part of what's going to go down. And, uh, and, uh, if, if, and let's pray for them by name. You know, let's get into smaller groups and actually pray for, the, for these people. The other thing you can do is you can run a purely social event where unchurched friends and families are invited to come along. And you can just have a fat jaw and, uh, and you tell everyone, guys, don't talk church. Just talk rugby. Talk whatever, you know, what people talk. We're going to just have a, a, a big thing. And, and what you're doing is you're meeting each other's friends and family. And it's amazing how often um, you can reach someone when that person now knows a few people in the church. So you're just putting yourself out there. And, and some people will often have this great experience of this group. They'll find out, oh, you guys are also in a small group. And they just might be that much more inclined to take up an invitation if you invite them to church or to even a small group in, in the future. The other one is that if an unchurched person arrives in your group, that you WhatsApp each other beforehand and just say, hey, I, I'm, my cousin's coming tonight. Just so you know, she hasn't been to church since she was a little girl. It's all new. She's actually quite scared. And I hope that you understand that you're going to do things different that night. And especially you're going to shy away from, from Christianese. Christian language that is all in-house language that's going to make her feel totally out. Totally out. Um, I remember being invited to this international um, wine society evening. Before I knew much about wine, I still don't know much. My wife knows a lot. She's a, she writes wine articles all the time. But I remember going to this night and feeling, what am I doing at the International Food and Wine Society? I don't know much about wine. And I sat at this table, and you're talking. And then one guy tells this joke of how he went to this dinner, and there was another guy who didn't even know the difference between a Shiraz and a Cabernet, and they all pack out laughing. And I'm like, <gasps> okay, I was, you know. Amazingly, I did go back in the future, but I took note. It's like, this is what it would feel like if you're not a Christian or not a churchgoer. You've got a small group, and it's all in-house language. So you don't want to use Christianese. You don't want to put pressure on this person. You don't want to say, hey, you don't want to force anyone to share. But you just want to factor in that there's a new person there and do things different for them. Hey, the other right thing that I've noticed is that the, the group that new people are most inclined to go to is a new group. We've noticed this in common ground. 
They, for example, what we did for about 10 years is we multiplied groups. We'd have one group multiplied into two, two multiplied into four, okay? And then some people said, you know what, can't I just start my own group from scratch? Me and my wife, or me and my buddy, just two of you. And you're like, uh, you don't want half the group? No, no, we just want to go on our own. We'll be fine. I'm like, okay. It was, it, so we called that not small group multiplying, we called that small group planting. And what we were amazed to find is that new people flooded into those groups in a way they didn't flood into the other ones. Because if you've had a group of 10 people that are meeting for three years and you multiply, now you've got two groups of five, a person on the outside still knows that that group of five are tight. So it's like you're going to be the spare wheel. It's going to take you a while to get in the groove, you know, know each other's jokes. And, uh, but, it, but if you hear this is a new group, it started like a month ago. You just, you just dive at it. You just, you, you, new groups for new people is one of the things that, that we've discovered. Uh, let, me land, let me land it like this. Um, years ago, I was part of a church that was actually just starting small groups for the first time. And they were still trying to figure out what small groups were. And, uh, and then one of the pastors had this revelation. And he said, guys, I think I understand what small groups are. He says, I think what we've been doing wrong the first six months of small groups is we've kind of pitched small groups as a jacuzzi where everybody gets in and it's safe and it's comfortable and you sit there and you're just comfortable and you belong and it's lacquer. And he says, but I think we got it wrong. I think that, I think that, that the better way of understanding a small group is you're a bunch of you on a lifeboat and there's people drowning and you're on the wild sea. And you can either sit in your lifeboat or you can paddle there and make space in your boat for some new people. And he shared that. And I think it was just before Titanic had come out. I mean, this was a long time ago I heard, <laughs> I heard this story. And, uh, and, uh, and, then, and then I watched Titanic and it, it sunk in extra hard. Because at the end, I don't know if you remember the scene, you got hundreds of people drowning and then you only got like 20 lifeboats. And the average lifeboat has still got space for another 5, 10 people each. But they freaked out. And they paddle away from the screaming crowds because they're nervous they'll get sunk by the, the mayhem. And only one lifeboat, and this is based on history, guys. This really happened. Only one lifeboat goes back to rescue people. And got me thinking there's this, there's this tendency in us that once you've got your group, you just get overcomfortable and you forget the mission. You turn your, your small group into a jacuzzi when you're meant to be a lifeboat. Okay, so what are small groups for? They're for belonging. Uh, they're for care. They are for growth, they're for encountering, and they're for integrating new people. Da-da-da! Da-da-da! <laughs> I don't know if Q&A is the coolest thing. I think it'd be better to actually get into groups and share uh, what stuck out to you. Even better, what about... Sorry, I haven't talked to you about this, Pierre. Do you mind if I just go with the flow here? i got the mic. Who's going to stop me? <laughs> If we actually get into your life groups, your small groups, just if there's, and if there's only three of you, you can join up with another uh, you know, group of three or whatever, and uh, just ask yourself what stuck out to you from tonight, and then just pray for your small group next year, and that God would empower you for this very important thing you're trying to do in small groups. Any other thoughts, Pierre? Okay.